0: I think I've shared this with you before, but uh, just as a reminder, when you entered the sanctuary this morning, uh, you entered a different time zone. The pagan calendar began last Sunday, um, and it happened on the first day of a month named after a Roman god, Janus. But our Christian calendar celebrated New Year's Day uh, on the first Sunday of Advent. And so we are well into another cycle through the biblical story as we live into the story into which we have been baptized with the community called church that continues to be shaped by reliving this story year after year as we cycle through it. Now, this, that makes this Sunday even more significant. Um, as Beth was introducing it, it is the Sunday after Epiphany. I hope many of you uh, feasted and celebrated last Friday, January 6th. Christians have a lot of days we can feast and celebrate. Uh, and there are there many variations in the first couple centuries of the church um, with regard to the celebration of January 6th. Um, they usually worked around events in Christ's life, uh, like, for instance, the visit of the wise men and the baptism of Jesus. These were celebrated on January 6th, long before December 25th became Christmas. Actually, uh, early Christians downplayed the day of physical birth. They instead celebrated uh, the day of their baptism, which was their rebirth, or um, the day of a saint's death, which, if you will, is kind of a, a graduation ceremony. So the traditional biblical texts for this Sunday after Epiphany uh, focus either on the visit of the wise men about two years after Jesus' birth, as the light of Jesus was brought to the world. And by the way, may I say, um, they weren't very wise. Um, Nobody's wise who goes and tells Herod that a new king has been born. So I don't know why we continue to call them that, but nonetheless, um, Many years, on some years, those texts are used. um, um, And so that's what we mean by epiphany, outside the boundaries of Israel. The light of Jesus came to people like these um, people who we call wise men. But texts like um, the one we're looking at today will focus on the baptism of Jesus. which is actually celebrated by Anglicans today on January 8th and by our Roman Catholic siblings tomorrow on January 9th. Um, And so the, the baptism of Jesus is in this year's rotation of those biblical texts that we call the lectionary. And so here we are in Matthew's gospel, seeing the adult Jesus for the first time and hearing the adult Jesus speak for the first time. And that is as it should be because this event sets the tone for his life and his mission. Jesus' life and mission, is in his ministry, is inaugurated with baptism at the beginning of Matthew's gospel just as the church's ministry will be inaugurated with a Trinitarian baptism at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. I mean, at first, the whole thing, though, is this, this whole baptism of Jesus seems rather odd. I mean, Jesus comes to be baptized, not to baptize. Imagine if the next time we have a baptism here at Holy Trinity, Jesus walks up to Todd and asks to be baptized along with all the others who are being baptized. Now, if you're imagining uh, Todd eating Locust and wild honey, you've taken the analogies too far, but nonetheless, um, it would be a very strange thing. I mean, just imagine this scenario. I mean, John the Baptizer must have thought, well, this is awkward. And even stranger is the reason that Jesus gives John the Baptizer for what he's about to do. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now, there's a lot of ink. That's been spilled, trying to figure out just what Jesus meant by those words. Some say it's his way of saying, I have to do the will of God more than anything else. Um, Others say that it's Jesus' way of turning water baptism into the baptism of the Spirit that makes it possible to live the life of righteousness. And, And by the way, when we are baptized in water, we are at the same time baptized in the Spirit, just as Jesus is experiencing. And then there's still others who say it's simply Jesus obeying the demands of the law. But I think we can make sense out of what's happening here, especially if we keep in mind that John has made it clear that he is baptizing, the baptizing he's doing is a baptism of repentance, of coming to terms with past failures, by turning around, by facing a new direction, by getting ready for something new, by realigning one's life with what God is up to. And that fits so well with what righteousness is, because righteousness is right-relatedness. The word in Greek can be translated justice and justice is when everything and everyone is in right relationship I mean we just read about it in the passage in Isaiah that God will bring justice to the earth right relatedness and so the righteousness that God requires is simply for everything and everyone to be rightly aligned as God intended so repentance, what's going on here at this baptism, repentance is the beginning of this realignment, of the establishment of right-relatedness, this righteousness. And it's something that God invites us to do in cooperation with him, because notice that Jesus didn't say, it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. He said it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So essentially, John is saying this. Jesus is saying this. John, let's do this thing now. Let's get it started. Let's begin to make it possible for all things and for all people to be realigned in such a way that everything in God's creation is restored in right relatedness. Of course, we know that then and now everything is not in right relatedness. We will also know that for that to become a reality, it required a Christmas. It required God to take on our humanity in order to set things right. I mean, remember, this is my bumper sticker, sin is the reason for the season. And we need to remember that because here the Son of God incarnate identifies with those who are coming to receive the baptism of repentance. Here the one who knew no sin and did not need to realign himself offers us a preview of what is to come. That the one who knew no sin will become our sin on the cross. He will become the guilty one who needs to repent. But Jesus' baptism is inseparable from his death. The one who will end his ministry on a cross between two thieves begins his ministry in a river among sinners. And so he is asking John to join him in this act, just as we join Jesus in his death and resurrection in our baptism. This all reminded me of a a profound comment that Simone Veil made in her book, Waiting for God. If you've never met Simone Veil, check out some of her writings. She wrote this, "'What I call the haven, as you know, is the cross. "'If it cannot be given me to deserve one day "'to share the cross of Christ, "'at least may I share that of the good thief.'" Of all the beings other than Christ, of whom the Gospels tell us, the good thief is by far the one I most envy. To have been at the side of Christ and in the same state during the crucifixion seems to me a far more enviable privilege than to be at the right hand of his glory. And that is part of what it means for us to fulfill all righteousness. But then that is also what makes this morning's combination of biblical texts dictated by the lectionary seemingly so strange. I don't know if you felt this as these were being read, but the contrast between what is happening here in Matthew 3, the humility of God the Son asking to be baptized, to identify with sinful humanity as a preview of his crucifixion at the hands of the Roman state it seems so out of touch with the imperative at the beginning of the psalm and its description of the God we worship, let alone the pronouncement at the end of our Isaiah passage. Because if you put those two Old Testament readings together, it says this, you pagan deities in the polytheistic belief systems that surround Israel and put pressure on her to conform and worship gods other than Yahweh, Know this, know that God does not give his glory to any other, nor his praise to carved idols. Instead, ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength to his name and worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And just to reinforce the point, think of the voice of the Lord as if it were a thunderstorm that ought to shake you up until you shout glory. I can relate to that. I'll never forget the evening in North Dakota when when I went out to the back porch to watch an incredible display of lightning until one struck directly in front of me so close that the blinding light and the peal of thunder were simultaneous. I I raced back with my hair standing on end raced back into the house and just stood there for a few moments trying to collect myself and return to normal, not saying glory, but saying, whoa. (laughs) And that's a little different than standing in a river with Jesus while he asks to be baptized with sinners. But that's what the psalmist is emphasizing. Not only that the pagan deities that were being hawked by Israel's neighbors but also against our own tendencies. I mean, we we get used to thinking of God, you know, as as our old buddy, old pal. As Christians, we sometimes become so comfortable with the salvation we've received in Christ that we forget how undeserved it is. When we focus on God only as redeemer and savior and friend and not as powerful God and creator and hater of sin and evil, it's, e- it's easy to weaken our understanding of God until he's kind of like a human buddy and pal who just accepts us as we are and doesn't challenge us to change. Those who want a nice Jesus, you're going to be disappointed when you get to the 11th chapter of Matthew because he's going to come down hard on some folks with reproach and condemnation on religious folks you know, in no uncertain terms. I mean, when God's voice is portrayed as thunder and lightning and wind in this psalm, it is portrayed as something active, as something that produces effects, that is heard, that is seen, that is felt. This is what is called a theophany, an appearance of God in the world that's meant to impress us with God's power and God's majesty as the ruler of the universe. We're confronted by something that we're not, like a bolt of lightning that causes an Isaiah to say, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is a God whose approach causes a Peter to fall to his knees and say, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. when we really see God as he is, his power and holiness displayed, our appropriate response is to get on our knees in acknowledge of just how far our lives, even at their very best, are removed from his holiness and how undeserving we are of his love, his kindness, his salvation. That's what we do each week in our prayer of confession. So this is seemingly an odd connection on this first Sunday after Epiphany. A psalm's loud and powerful theophany that breaks the cedars is linked with the gospel's quiet and humble epiphany in the waters of the Jordan. The voice of Yahweh in the thunderstorm is announcing, this is my cosmos. But it's paired with the voice of the Father at the baptism saying, this is my Son. Two go together, though, because only the God who created the water in which God himself is baptized has the power and the authority to set everything back in right relatedness. In fact, we're reminded by our scripture readings this morning that God meets us in and through the waters that God made in the first place. God meets us in the mundane reality of the world that God created, like the water of a river or a baptistry. God takes bread from grain and, and wine from, made from grapes. And and makes them be for us the body and blood of his son. In other words, the Christian life isn't simply some some inward subjective experience, some pious feeling. And God isn't just my chum old pal. But at the same time, remember what, what season launched us into epiphany. The celebration of a God who came to us in human flesh. God with us. In a human body. I mean, we're plunged into a real tangible world of water and soil and creatures and human bodies, the kind referred to in the psalm that responds to God's voice. And, And that is what the very tangible aspects of our worship remind us of the kneeling that puts us in a bodily posture of repentance the open hands that symbolize that we receive God's gift of salvation, the wine and the bread by which we actually feel the touch of Jesus in our bodies. And in all of this, God invites us to align our lives with his agenda in establishing the right relations that he intended for this world in order to fulfill all righteousness. One final thought. Only two times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke does the Father speak directly to the world. Only two times. Here at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. And both times, the voice of this God of thunder tells us that Jesus is the Father's beloved Son with whom the Father is deeply pleased. Apparently, that's the most important thing God wants us to know. The most important thing God wants us to know is that everything, God, it's as if God's saying, everything I want and to say and reveal and do, everything I want people to see and believe and know about me, everything I want people to know about how to please me, all of this is revealed in this Son who is the delight of my life. As John puts it in the opening prologue of his gospel, Christ was in the very heart of the Father, and he exegeted God. That's the actual Greek. Jesus exegeted God. And when we who are invited with the words, Let us fulfill all righteousness, we who are baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ can hear the same words You are my priceless child. I am deeply pleased with you. So be attentive this week. May the meaning of our baptism remind us this coming week that in the very physical world that this God of thunder has created, that God is present, pouring out his blessing on us as he sends us out to follow the Christ who identified himself with us so that we might identify with him in his life and his death and his resurrection. And by the way, it may be very inconvenient when he shows up. Just keep that in mind. It may be when you least expect him. He might even come forward and say something like, Will you baptize me? So maybe take a few moments of silence as we even join again in this breath prayer for Epiphany, turn our hearts to your word, turn our hearts to you, as we think about ways this coming week when Jesus might just show up and invite us to join him in reestablishing some right relatedness, some justice in the world that he has made.